This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. This sounds like an obvious thing to say, but getting the right people in the right jobs is important. And a number of the policy fights that we have are in large part about trying to do that. Are we admitting the right people to the right colleges? Do we have labor market policies that make it possible for the right people to work? How is discrimination keeping the right people out of the right jobs? But this is an even bigger concern for employers and for workers than it is for the government, because you have to hire the right people and you have to find the job that's right for you. So that makes it a little concerning how impressionistic and unscientific a lot of the recruiting and hiring process is. How much more productive could we be if we did better at identifying talent and at identifying where our own talents can be most productively used? Here to talk with me about those questions is Tyler Cowan. Tyler is an economist and chair of the economics department at George Mason University. He's a best-selling author, and his writing is published widely in Bloomberg Opinion, The New York Times, and others, and in the popular economics blog, which he co-founded, Marginal Revolution. His newest book, which he co-wrote with Daniel Gross, is called Talent, How to Identify Energizers, Creatives, and Winners Around the World. Hi, Tyler. Hello, Josh. Good to be here. Thank you for being here. I, I want to actually start by emphasizing the importance of this talent question at an economy-wide level, because we, we talk a lot about labor productivity, and, and usually what we talk about is how can we educate people better, how can we provide workers with technology that will allow them to produce more per hour. But this is also an important question for labor productivity, right? That if you get the right people in the right jobs, they'll be more productive. So how well are we doing that? There's an estimate that since 1960, 20-40% to 40% of American economic growth has come simply from the better allocation of talent. That's looking only at women and minorities. In our economy, there's way too much credentialism. There are people who should aspire to doing better than they do, but they have local peer groups that encourage them to think you know, at a smaller scale. And there are just so many people, you see this from your history you know, in blogging and online media, who, if they didn't have a particular kind of chance, wouldn't have gotten into the positions they're in. So we can do a much better job on talent allocation. And the purpose of this book is to teach people how to do that. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, that issue with, with women and minorities. Basically, the, the thesis there is that you had this amount of labor market discrimination. We still have labor market discrimination, but you had more in the past. And therefore, there were talented women, talented people who were members of racial minority groups who were not getting hired into jobs that they were very well suited to. How do they calculate that estimate? How do you figure out what the quantitative amount of productivity gain has been from reductions in that amount of labor market discrimination? Well, if you go back, say, to 1960 and look at how many women are partners in law firms, it's very close to zero. But there's some natural extent to which women can be partners in law firms. Uh, take the current percentage, which is still too low. But the 20 to 40 percent is a kind of bare minimum estimate that if we had earlier on done at least as well as we are doing today, however imperfect that may be, uh, we could have been much richer all along. And today, it's not just women and minorities, but there are people who maybe are ugly or people who are overweight or just rebellious males who don't like doing homework and the school system is not well suited for them, right? So there's a lot of margins along which uh, we still do talent discrimination in an unjust way. Talent discrimination is just one of many ways that you could have misallocation. I mean, one thing you mentioned was people who don't get opportunities uh, to demonstrate their talent in a certain area. Your book focuses a lot on the hirer side, 
basically, if you are funding startups or you're running a company trying to figure out who the right people are to hire into positions. But this is a two-sided equation, right? Workers also have a strong incentive to figure out what they're good at and what they should match into. What should people do if they're trying to figure out whether they have hidden talents or whether there are talents they'd be well-suited to develop uh, that would be rewarded in the labor market? What can, what can we do better from the individual side? Well, our book gives a number of questions and procedures that employers might go through to evaluate candidates. But this is a book for workers, too. So you can ask yourself all those same questions and try to figure out what you're good at. It's also a way of sizing up the person who's interviewing or evaluating you. What are their talents? To what kind of talents are you trying to appeal? What do they see as important? So it's very much a two-way book for either side of the market. Technology should help here, right? Hiring is done over the internet. You're able to access a much larger pool of potential talent. Are you able to measure the extent to which that is improved talent matching? Are we doing a better job of hiring through because we have assistance through technology? I think we're just starting to see a world where technology matters. So obviously, during the pandemic, you have a great deal of work from home. Many companies now just hire people in India, Nigeria, wherever it may be, uh, without thinking twice about it. That's a fairly new phenomenon, but I'm struck by the slowness of the labor market recovery You know, from the recession of 2008, 2009. We didn't do that well re-employing people. So technology clearly matters, but it's a much more recent phenomenon than most people think. And just having LinkedIn, useful though it may be, it did not give us a quicker labor market recovery last time around. I think this time it is doing that. The main difference that I would tend to point to between that labor market recovery and this one, I mean, for, well, first of all, the fundamental causes of the economic crisis that got us into a recession were very different. But I, we also had a very different fiscal and monetary policy response that, you know, I mean, being able to identify the right candidates is one thing that companies need to do to want to hire, but it's not the only thing. They also have to believe that there's a robust consumer market out there for whatever it is that they would have people do. So is that, I mean, my first thought would not have been to say that this labor market recovery is better because companies have better tools to figure out who to hire. My mind would be to say this labor market recovery is better because consumers have a ton of money to spend and companies know that if they can hire, then there will be someone out there to buy the product or service. What, make, what makes you think that you can ascribe it to technology? Well, I think it's both factors. But if you think of the earlier downturn, if you have information technology, you should be able to say, well, here's my actual real wage, right? This is what they're offering me. Nominal wages shouldn't be that sticky. Uh, find the job you're well suited for, take it, and then ride the upward recovery. Now, some people did that. It was not that prominent a phenomenon. That, to me, is a sign we're still bad at allocating talent. In terms of the technological approaches to identifying talent, one thing is that is being able to look at a wider variety of data about uh, potential applicants. And I, I, I'm interested in how much your book focused on interviewing and sort of sort of soft efforts to find who's the right talent here, because it seems like the first and, and the, the most the question you can most rigorously study is to look at certain quantifiable objective things. I mean, the, the sort of archetypal example, right, is, is Moneyball and the Oakland Athletics and figuring out that there was all this sort of unmined statistical information that helped them figure out, you know, who was who was an undervalued baseball recruit. And, and baseball is sort of a weird industry for that, right? Because it's zero sum like that created an advantage for the A's for a time. But it's not clear that better matching of baseball players makes 
for better baseball overall, baseball that is more interesting to watch or more profitable for the team owners or whatever whatever measure you want to use. But in most industries, we would get it would be positive. Some we would get real productivity improvements in the whole economy uh, by being able to better look at a candidate and figure out this one's actually better than he would have seemed to be based on on prior measures. Is there is there a lot of that quantitative stuff that's not being tapped appropriately by employers? Data works great in sports, but we look at some of the available quantitative measures, personality, psychology, self-assessments, and IQ tests. The latter, of course, are illegal to ask for. But even if you have that data, it's striking to my co-author and me how little IQ influences wages or productivity. So for a lot of jobs, I think you need to be at some certain level of smarts to do the job. Uh, But above that level, the correlation between achievement and IQ is remarkably weak. So, for instance, there's one study of Swedish CEOs of large companies, and in terms of IQ, on average, they're at the 83rd percentile in Swedish society. So the 50th percentile is average, 100th percentile would be the top. 83rd percentile, like that's pretty smart, right? But if you just think by targeting the geniuses, you're getting the best CEOs, those are not the decisions the market has been making. And factors such as drive, persistence, ability to self-improve, how you understand, how you work with other people. They do better, I think, in a soft sense than having a measurement of someone's IQ. Do you apply that in, in, in your day-to-day? I mean, for, I mean, for example, for the George Mason Economics Department, if you're considering graduate students or if you're considering faculty hires, GRE scores are basically a proxy for IQ, right? Are GREs overrated in the selection of, of graduate students in economics? Because I, I, I've always thought that, you know, having a high GRE score is considered one of the most important things. Well, I would say we designed graduate programs, so you need a high GRE score to get through it. But if you're looking at actual public impact, uh, I strongly suspect actual public impact and GRE scores are not very well correlated amongst economists. And when we hire people, we don't look at their GRE scores. I'm not even sure we're allowed to, in fact, but we don't do it. We don't want to do it. You want to engage with the candidate, see if the candidate understands economics, see if the candidate is full of vision and energy and understands that it may take decades of sticking at a topic and trying to reach the world. And again, those are going to predict success better than IQ, provided the person is above some certain level. But so, I mean, even if you're not looking at the GRE score, which program someone's coming out of is to some extent a proxy for the GRE score, which is then a proxy for for IQ. I, I'm just trying to, to figure out, you know, whether there are real world applications and whether you're applying them. I mean, is one implication of your book that economics departments or, or other uh, academic departments should be looking toward more graduates of, of mid-level rather than top-level programs, because maybe the top-level programs are for no good reason selecting on GRE score? Well, even mid-level programs now, they tend to pick only people with very high GRE scores. So you're not getting real variation there. But I strongly believe IQ is overrated in the economics profession. You end up with a lot of people who are superb at math. They publish well. Uh, the work may be as flawless in some regards, but their ability to see relevance, to understand social context, to build a team of people on a project uh, are really quite distinct. And again, I would rather hire people who at the margin have more of those skills. But so this must be a huge problem in the labor market overall, right? Because it's not it's not just economics. It's not just graduate programs that are heavily selecting on intelligence, right? I mean, if you think of graduation from top level undergraduate universities. That's to a large extent a proxy of SAT score, which is a proxy of IQ. 
it seems to me like putting that at the top by your analysis must be causing a massive misallocation of, of talent, right? Is there So what can people do to address that? Well, I think we have a misallocation of talent on several fronts. First, I think we weight grades far too much. So we're, we're picking up too much conscientiousness in our candidates and just people who love to do homework, who, again, typically will do well in jobs. Conscientiousness is positively correlated with achievement. But if you are looking for energizers, creatives, and winners, mere conscientiousness is not such a great predictor of that. So if the job requires only conscientiousness, fine, of course, you know, target grades, you'll do quite well. So we have put so many layers of veto. Well, what school did you get into? Did you have a 4.0? How good were your essays? I'm advising some people applying to undergraduate institutions, and they tell me it takes six full months of their life to write all the different essays for each school according to different models, different templates, get feedback, make them sound perfect. I think we're just selecting for people gaming the system, not for real creativity. So we're too concerned with avoiding a certain kind of error and not concerned enough with people who do valuable things with their free time. And that's what I look for in interviewing for most kinds of positions. Is this person good at doing things in their free time on their own? So your focus on energizers, creatives, and winners, which, as you note, is right in the title of the book. How important are energizers, creatives, and winners in the economy? I mean, not not every job calls for that skill set, right? I mean, as, as you point out, conscientiousness, which is positively correlated with, with income and educational achievement and a wide variety of other things, people who actually do the things that they say they're going to do, set out and finish tasks, that sort of thing. That's really important in a lot of places in the economy. I assume a lot more roles than where you really want an energizer, a creative, a winner. But I, I, I guess the roles where you do need an energizer, creative, a winner, those are really highly productive roles where it's going to be really important that you get the right person. So how, how much of the overall talent search the, you know, the importance of getting the right people in the right jobs, the economy, how, how important is this fraction of it that you're focused on that's focused on these sort of really unique talents? The value added of innovation is extraordinarily high. I mean, just look at mRNA vaccines. But our book gives advice for many different layers of the hiring process. So if you understand the value of energizers and creators, you'll also recognize that if you're hiring a cashier for Starbucks, you're maybe not looking for an energizer per se. They need to have some level of energy, but you don't want them to get too bored with the job either. So by understanding how to hire at that top level, it also gives you a deeper understanding of you know, the whole supply chain of workers. Your co-author, Daniel Gross, is, is in the startup space, and you, and you run this project called Emergent Ventures that is essentially a, a startup incubator of, of an unusual sort. But so you're, you're both looking for people who can build new organizations, scale them up, that sort of thing. How different are the talent needs there as compared to within large organizations? Are there, Can you take the same principles into both places, or are we looking for different kinds of people? I think it's broadly the same principles. Any principles you're going to modify according to the kind of job, the level of the job, the sector. But we give people a framework for thinking about IQ, conscientiousness, extroversion, uh, disagreeableness, for which jobs are they positives, for which are they negatives. And we don't pretend we can cover every possible case, right? That's just not feasible. But once you have the frameworks and you talk those through with your team or the other people you're working with, there's a general way in which you start thinking more directly and more seriously and more intellectually about your potential hires or where you should be applying for a job, as the case may be. 
you name a few personality traits in there. I mean, we talked about conscientiousness already, and, and you talk in the book about the way that the, the traits in the five-factor model, which is a, a topic we discussed on this podcast a, a couple of months ago with Olga Kazan from The Atlantic, they're correlated, but maybe not as correlated as you might hope with certain aspects of job performance. We've talked about how IQ is not as correlated as people might, might have expected. How confident are you that the things you are trying to measure on that they are correlated to performance and that you're measuring them accurately. Because, I mean, that, that strikes me as the problem with the sort of unstructured interview approach that you talk about in the book, questions that you ask people to get a deep sense of their drive and that sort of thing. Do you know if you're measuring that well? Do you know, do you know what the correlations are between that and success? Well, I would put it this way. We don't pretend to have all the answers, but we try to offer people a framework along which they can learn at a faster pace than what they're doing now. So a lot of people are not aware of basic categories or what they should be asking. They ask too many automatic questions that are in interview books, like, well, tell us about a mistake you made at a prior job. That might be fine, but everyone is prepared for a question like that. You're really just testing for prep. Now, maybe prep is one important feature of a good worker, but it's only prep. The answer you're getting has very little information. Whereas if you ask a person something like, what are the open tabs on your browser right now? They're not prepared for that question. They can't really fake it. It gives you a sense what they do in their free time, uh, how curious they are. And again, if it's the Starbucks cashier, you probably don't care about that. But for a lot of jobs, when you know they go to hire your replacement someday, uh, that's a very important <laughs> question. What are the open tabs on your browser? It's interesting because what you say in here, I think, goes against a lot of what the, the current uh, fashion is in the advice about interviewing, which is basically that you should be more structured, um, that when you send people in to conduct unstructured interviews, they don't know what questions to ask. They end up liking the candidates who are similar to them in personality and other traits. They select for people that they would enjoy hanging out with, who they could see themselves being friends with, which is not really necessarily a good way to identify good candidates. It can also reinforce certain racial and gender stereotypes where, you know, disproportionately the people doing the hiring are white men. They're going to tend to relate to other white men in that way. And and you, you nod to this in the book. I mean, first of all, you talk about trying to overcome gender and racial biases and and be and acknowledge them and you also talk about best practices in here you don't want to send in you know people who are completely green to do unstructured interviews but if you think about a large organization that has to you know if you're Google or something and you have to come up with a strategy for hiring that's not just a few senior executives think of, read your book and think about how to do this where you need to implement this across an organization which many people will be responsible for the hiring and the evaluation is your approach actually better than than a sort of second best approach that relies on much more structure, telling people what to ask, and maybe you don't get all the best questions in the interview, but maybe you're getting a better result than if you just if you let those people try to implement this thing that they are not expert in? There are many hires that are just one-off decisions when they hired me, when they hired you. So think of that as the base case. But let's take a large company that needs to hire a lot of people in a month. They will need to have a highly structured process. It will need to be fairly homogenized. But the unstructured part of the process, it enters at some point. So if you hire 2,000 software engineers, they're with your company for a while. Senior management interacts with them. All of those are ongoing interviews in a sense, right? How do you interpret the feedback you get from working with these people, interacting with them, deciding who should be promoted? There's something ineradicable about the personal nature of judgment at some margins. And that's what we're trying to teach people. We're not in this book teaching people how to write the optimal 30-question questionnaire for hiring 2,000 software engineers in a month. That's important too, absolutely. 
Does this have implications for ideal organization size? I mean, larger firms tend to be more productive than smaller firms. They enjoy economies of scale. The fact that they got large tends to indicate that they were better at something than their peers. Um, but a lot of what you're describing, I think, is more difficult to implement in a large organization than a small one. Again, you, you can't implement it across the board, but there will be margins when you're deciding of the people I work with, who are the ones I'm impressed by. And even in the largest organization, those judgmental issues will resurface. But startups are very, very good at innovating, right? They're not necessarily the most productive because they don't have scale yet. But if we think of innovation as bringing a lot of social value, uh, and again, you look at a lot of recent discoveries such as mRNA vaccines, well, it was Pfizer who scaled up the production, but the ideas came from quite small units. And that's a very common pattern in many sectors that you want the best talent innovating at a small scale. You then may want to put that innovation into a larger company to produce a lot of the thing more cheaply. Uh, and you need to get both of those right. Do you think the the startup economy has been allocating capital well over the last decade or so and 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 producing useful innovation on average? I mean, certainly, I mean, you can point to BioNTech and, and Moderna and other uh, extremely successful companies in this space. I've also seen, it seemed for a long time, like the, the private markets were very frothy, uh, that there were a lot of business ideas that venture capital firms and other investors in the private markets were willing to throw a lot of money at that public markets basically looked at and said, these prices are unreasonable, and that's why these companies waited so long to go public. Do you not take that as a sign that a lot of this capital is actually being misallocated? Maybe they're not doing better at innovation than larger firms would? I think what you might broadly call tech has been the most dynamic sector of the U.S. economy for the last 20 years. And it works on a basis, you know, roughly similar to what Daniel Gross and I outline in the book, that there are venture capitalists, they talk with people, they do judge, is this person capable of carrying off a large-scale company? Uh, it's not a structured process where thousands of people fill out the same questionnaire. And we, that's done fairly well by us. So uh, I think we need more of that rather than less of that. And many other countries envy the United States venture capital model, and they're trying to copy it. Israel has succeeded. Uh, China is its own story that has a bigger role for government. But a lot of the world wishes they could do what we've done with our tech sector and mobilizing of talent, including immigrants, of course. You wrote recently on why major tech firms have such left-leaning workforces, and this has driven a number of notable news stories coming out of the tech sector, you know, employee walkouts, you had the whole uh, kerfuffle over James Damore's firing at Google and, and, and that sort of thing. Does it matter business-wise uh, that the industry has this particular political alignment of so many employees? Is it causing tech firms to make more money or less money? I think it has become a problem. Uh, because people who are right-wing feel not at home or pushed out. But I don't panic about this as much as many of my right-wing friends. I think a tech company, it's highly meritocratic. You're, you're selecting for very particular skills. People come in, they don't necessarily have a kind of camaraderie or very strong common background. They might be from many different countries or religions. And they need something like a day-to-day -day religion to bind them together. And, and wokeness has served that purpose. Uh, it's not my personal set of views, but I think it, it is something to be understood first and condemned only later. It is in some ways useful. But so I, I, what I see as the sort of 
religious belief set that's most common in the tech industry it is not one that's actually so explicitly political. It's that so many tech employees, and, and frankly, this is part of what I find really annoying about San Francisco, they believe that whatever they're doing is changing the world. That it's sort of this techno-optimism stuff, but it extends to you know delivery services and things that are frankly not especially high-tech. They're just using smartphones and various things to, to dispatch individual workers. It's been a problem with these business models. They don't scale their productivity in the way that certain you know really core tech technology businesses do. But anyway, it seems like there has been this ethic that basically what we are doing is so important and so transformative and so revolutionary. And that's why I need to work 90 hours a week and extended in, you know, more or less effective ways, even into consumer product companies that sort of position themselves like they were tech companies, like Away, the luggage company. So it seems like, it seems to me like the tech sector already had a version of that religion, one that could be significantly more inclusive than one that was aligned to, to political ideologies. I don't know that I buy that you needed some other unifying thing. I would rather have the, the tech religion move more in that direction. I agree it's there, but for people at lower levels, they're not all at that motivated you know, and wanting to work 90 hours a week. So I think some other additional religion has evolved. But I like that religion, that things really matter. And people will overestimate their import but if you look at you know the great artistic creative revolutions of the past, look at Flor- you know the Florentine Renaissance. People <laughs> in that thought things really really mattered. It turned out to be somewhat correct. But I think you need that because for wokeness to serve this purpose, it not only needs to take hold among the employees. They need to be convinced that what they're doing at work is in service of it, right? Because that seems like a hard sell in a lot of these cases. Most companies, their output does not have particular importance in either direction for social justice. I guess you could convince yourself of that incorrectly. And I think this has been part of the business problem for these companies, that if you think the purpose of your work at Google or Facebook is some higher social purpose, that's incorrect, or the things you do to make it correct move away from the business function of the company. It, se- it seems like it can flow back into the business model. I think wokeness is significantly weakening in a lot of tech companies, even if people are afraid to speak up and say so, uh, partly for that reason, and partly just you know the purges and cancellations have gone too far, and people are tired of it. And they see how many of the victims are, say, women or people who are just moderate Democrats in some way. And uh, again, I'm not an advocate of woke, but I think uh, there are too many people who attack it without first understanding it. When you cite the the potential that you could alienate conservative employees as an issue here, could you have an equilibrium where you had a variety of different companies in the industry that had different political valences associated with them and you wouldn't lose talent for that reason? You could have a red company and a blue company. You would need more than one of each. But so long as you had a large enough set of employers that people could go work for and people could sort into the firm, would it be more would it would a firm be more productive if people were sort of sort of had that social issue, that political issue alignment? within a company? Or is that going to lead to harmful groupthink or it's just costly to, to impose any arbitrary uh, division in the workforce? What, what do you think about that possibility? I think it's costly to impose. You get some harmful groupthink. Uh, a lot of these companies, I wouldn't call them monopolies, but they're somewhat unique in their space. And you might be good at you know working for one, but not working for another. So you're going to get a lot of talent misallocation. And the very best American companies of the past mostly have hired Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Progressives, and just made it work. So I worry that is getting harder to do, especially in the tech sector. But that to me is the ideal model. Just live and let live. You know, we disagree on many things, but we're here at work. We have a common mission. We're going to do it because what we're doing is really, really important.
I wonder what you think the implications here are for Twitter after Elon Musk takes it over. Because one of the constituencies that seems to where it seems that many of the people in the constituency are quite upset about this takeover are employees of Twitter. Now, it's it's hard from the outside to get a sense of the extent to which louder activist employees speak for the whole employee base. But it's it, you know, there, it would make sense that Twitter would largely have an employee base that aligns with the left wing or left of center politics that dominates in the industry and that aligned with sort of the ethos of the the most recent set of management there, if not going all the way back to Jack Dorsey. What does that mean if you're if you're coming in and taking over the company and you have a shift in business strategy, you have a shift in the product strategy, and it all has a really significant political overlay that may put you in in conflict with your employees? I assume that creates an additional factor on which you have to select for talent that unfortunately is a, a factor that does not necessarily align with, are you a good software engineer? My impression is that Twitter has been poorly managed for quite a while. It has far too many workers flat out, no matter what their ideologies. I wouldn't be shocked if the new owners of Twitter moved it out of San Francisco, which would be a way to shed a lot of that labor. Although it's interesting, apparently the pitch deck that Elon Musk has been using says that the employee base will shrink and then it will grow and end up being quite a bit larger. And more centrist over time and also more right wing. So that will fit better to what I suspect is Elon Musk's new vision for Twitter. So that will be a slow process. I don't think it will happen as quickly as many people are expecting. I think Twitter will end up as more centrist than right wing. They need to keep the interest of advertisers. They want to keep women on the platform. Women especially don't want to be harassed or threatened with violence. And the notion that it will all just be a big free speech, free for all and still make money, I don't think that's possible. It will in some ways look a bit more like the Twitter we already know, which I'm okay with, to be clear. But so to, to go through a transition like that, if you identify that an organization, you know, the sort of structurally has incorrect fits on one measure, and here we're talking about an, an ideological measure, there's a huge transition cost to replacing employees, right? There's a lot of knowledge that is built up in the existing employee base. Hiring is expensive. You have to do searches. You have to train new employees. I assume that's an enormous cost within any organization where the incremental value of changing who the talent is has to be really high to justify that cost. It's a big cost, but if you're starting from a position where a lot of your workers don't actually add value, and some of them might actually subtract value, uh, the best way to deal with that cost is to just start doing it. I want to talk some about higher ed, which we talked a little bit about. Roughly, there are two purposes to college or graduate education. You want to develop talent and you want to signal that you have that talent. How well is education doing on those two measures right now? Education is a highly diverse sector. I think the what you might call the Ivy League and schools in the top tier will be successful forever, but they're not nearly inclusive enough. They should take in many more students, but it's an elite club. They don't want to do that. They'll be dragged to that altar kicking and screaming. And basically, there are a way that elites reproduce themselves in a pretty cynical way. State universities are surprisingly healthy. They're not what I would have bet on 20 years ago, but they get for a lot of their students both certification and better jobs and teach them some skills. Small schools at many levels are, are, are getting creamed financially and otherwise. Why go to them? So, you know, I would bet on the very top schools and the large state universities to carry the sector forward. I think they're mediocre in terms of how well they're run pretty consistently. But what students want from them is an experience that the students themselves largely create. So in that sense, the fact that they're so poorly run doesn't matter as much as you might think. 
when you say the the top schools will be dragged kicking and screaming to expansion, you know, if Harvard and Yale don't want to get bigger, nobody can make them, right? Well, Yale has gotten somewhat bigger. Yale and University of Chicago, I believe, have done the best in that tier. Uh, their boards would have to drag them, and it may not work in every case. But I think at some point to have these super left-wing institutions committed to the most inegalitarian set of practices imaginable that they then feel good about simply by taking in like a larger number of minorities, I don't quite think that's ideologically sustainable forever, though clearly it's the status quo and it's not going to change, say, in the next five years, not fundamentally. It's a space that is remarkably resistant to new entrants. I mean, the, the, the quality of for-profit institutions has generally been very low. You're not seeing the substantial, uh, I mean, you're seeing state university systems expand in terms of the number of slots that they have, but you're not seeing the creation of new institutions that you saw sort of in the middle of the, the last century. I assume that must be something that allows people to get complacent. They don't face new competitors. On the other hand, the startup cost to create a new university would be absolutely enormous. Is that, is that something that, that should be done? Is that something that's, that government should be doing? Or is that not necessary in order to whip the existing institutions into shape? I'm all for new, new universities. I'm affiliated with a small number of them myself. But I, would, I view it differently. The new entrant is the internet and YouTube. And when it comes to actually influencing people, the internet is kicking butt relative to universities. Universities are fiscally fine, the larger ones. But where people actually get their ideas, they have lost massive mind share. And the, the Internet's not entirely free, but the alternative to universities is the Internet, and we have it now, and it has succeeded. And this gets back to those tech people thinking what they're doing is so important. It is so important. But that's the developing talent side of institutions of, of higher education. And people certainly, they learn a lot by themselves, by reading and watching over the Internet. But that, that's not useful for signaling. But it's networking, right? And networking is related to signaling. If you have a lot of Twitter followers, people follow your YouTube channel, you're signaling you have some kind of talent. Mr. Beast, whom I don't know, but he has to be a super talented guy, right? It's not possible otherwise. Even as prices have gone up so much for higher education, we've been seeing more and more demand for degrees. Is that something that should undermine that in the long run? I mean, the, a substantial part of the value of the degree is the signal. It says, I'm someone who was able to get into this institution. I'm someone who was conscientious enough to complete the program at this institution. If there are other significantly less expensive ways to signal that one has certain talents and capabilities, you would expect that to reduce the demand for higher education. I think the value of higher ed is shifting more and more into networking, not signaling. And there are other ways you can signal your talent. I mean, you could just take tests, right? But having people who can vouch for you, which can get you much further than just having, say, perfect GRE scores, good universities are still excellent at that in large part. And you can use the internet for that, but I don't see it threatening the top universities in that role. Then that's interesting. That makes me wonder what you think about the trend among universities to stop requiring the SAT or, or other standardized tests. I mean, I, a lot of people broadly on the right have been upset about this trend. They see it as uh, as a move away from from merit and, and aptitude measures. I mean, we started with you talking about that you think IQ is sort of overrated in terms of measuring talent. So if that goes, if that's just a proxy for IQ, are, are universities going to do better with a with a selection system that leans less on standardized tests? I don't like their motives for dropping standardized tests, and they're doing it to give themselves more discretion, and overall, they're using their discretion poorly. So at the margin, I'm opposed to the change, 
Uh, but that said, I would agree standardized tests are overrated. And if they were doing it out of better motives and had better replacement practices, it could in principle be a good thing. But they're very far from that. So how would you select applicants to, say, Harvard if you dropped standardized testing requirements? You also expressed a little bit of skepticism about GPA and basically saying it measures conscientiousness, but I'm not sure how much we care about conscientiousness. You don't like the the, the purposes for, for which the universities are doing this. Would you do these unstructured interviews on high school students? Well, I run a fellowship program of my own called Emergent Ventures, and I can tell you what I do. And I'm not suggesting everyone should do what I do. Uh, there's a very short, quite simple application form, which you can read online. And it asks you, who are you? What's your idea? And, and why is this important? So it's testing writing. And I interview serious candidates, usually on Zoom, occasionally in person. Uh, I don't ask for GRE or SAT scores. Don't ask for a curriculum vita. Don't ask where people went to school. So I am looking in particular for people who fall through the cracks and don't fit into the usual categories. Now, the world as a whole cannot do that. I understand that quite well. But nonetheless, have people initiated projects at a fairly young age through their own drive and stuck with them? And do they have creative ideas are, are the main things I'm looking for. And how do you evaluate whether you've been making good choices in emergent ventures? I am in touch with the large majority of winners. There's now over 170 winners. And uh, there's a separate program, Emergent Ventures India, run by someone else that now has about 60 winners. Uh, they are to submit progress reports to us. And a lot of them are doing very well. A lot of them are still, you know, 17 years old. I'm very hopeful. Like, it feels like they're doing great. But I won't know for a long time. But so th there's two questions that, that you might ask. One is, you know, did I pick the right people? And the other is, did the grant that I give these people enable them to do something better than they would have done if they had not gotten the grant, right? And so, like, it seems like addressing both of those questions, ideally, you would have a control group. But there is no control group, right? If there's a good person, I want to give them the money rather than run the experiment. The people who get the money certainly will attest it made a difference. I don't think you can necessarily take that at face value. But you do what you can, right? So you create a network, you certify them. A lot of the value of emergent ventures is not the money. And uh, you hope the money matters too. And you also raise their aspirations. You tell them like, hey, what you're doing is really important. Other people think this too. But so when, when you say, uh, uh, you, you acknowledge you, you could not scale this to, you know, to use a model like this for college admissions. It's too many people. I, I suspect some, some of these measures don't, wouldn't really work for high school students. Sure. So how would you run admissions of a large university that, in a way that de-emphasized GPA and SAT scores? How would you select candidates? I would still put more stress on people who initiated weird projects at early ages and stuck with them and saw them through in some way, even if they had bad grades. But that so is, you can do at scale. Isn't that sort of selecting for entrepreneurs, right? I mean, yes, absolutely. I want to select for entrepreneurs. And if more of them drop out, I'm happy about that, too. Is that the right focus for I, I mean, I, I'm not sure it's even the right focus for Harvard. It's definitely not the right focus for, you know, the University of Minnesota. We need I mean, we need th those institutions will produce some number of really high talents. But we also need people to come out of there and work in middle management and be, you know, be successful high level sales representatives and important mid and mid upper level roles in the economy where it, where it feels like the, that's you're not measuring for that. Sure. This is a change at the margin. So most people didn't start some new need project at age 13. 
And a lot of the admissions decisions are just people who did well in high school, and those people are still going to get in. But at the margin, what you want more of is people with bad grades, who didn't play by the rules of the system, but have a lot of creative energy. And we're failing those students right now, in my opinion. Okay, so so basically, it's you would de-emphasize the, the existing measures, but you, w- you wouldn't drop them. And so you would still have a lot of people who are being admitted on the basis, basically, of GPA and, and test scores. Sure. And again, I think what you want is not for all schools to do, you know, what Tyler Cowen says, <laughs> but you want a lot more experimentation. Right. So the experiment I would like to see is in that direction at some schools, see how that works. In general, within a given tier, it's remarkable how little experimentation we have in higher ed. That is part of our current disease. So simply having experimentation with more different ways of doing admissions is the main meta thing I would like to see for colleges. Let's leave it there for this week. Tyler Cowan, I want to thank you very much for coming to speak with me. Josh Barrow, my pleasure. Thank you. Again, Tyler's new book with Daniel Gross is called Talent, How to Identify Energizers, Creatives, and Winners Around the World. If you'd like to be the first to know about upcoming podcast topics and to suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me and special access to our thoughtful Very Serious community. I encourage you to consider supporting the Very Serious podcast and newsletter as a paying subscriber. We do not currently have advertising in this podcast. Uh, It is subscription fees that make this podcast and the associated newsletter possible. Uh, And speaking for myself, I think the newsletter is pretty great. If you're not subscribing to it, uh, you can go to Josh. Barrow.com. You get four issues a week from me on politics, the economy, uh, grilling and why it's bad or uh, any other uh, bad opinions that I might have about food or or maybe even good opinions. Um, And we also answer your mail once a week. So I encourage you to write in. You can write in at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo as in mayonnaise. And I may answer your question right there in the newsletter. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week.